You are about to listen to the full interview with John B. Busher. Sections of it were originally included in our John Murray Spear episode. John B. Busher is the author of The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, Agitator for the Spiritland. We dig deeper into John's early life and more wild experiments we didn't have time for in the episode. We hope you enjoy. My name is John Busher, and I'm a retired academic researcher. Um, my primary field of research is 19th century American spiritualism. Um, I first became interested in that subject after I had finished my graduate work studying Asian religions. And uh, I wondered at that time, who was it that first became interested in Asian religions in the West? And why did they become interested? So I was led to uh, look into the sources, and, and it was clear to me that those first people were folks like um, Henry David Thoreau and Emerson, transcendentalists from New England, who were sitting around reading the Bhagavad Gita, somehow looking for sources of wisdom there. But among them, um, also seated next to them in these lectures and discussion sections were spiritualists. And I didn't really know anything about who spiritualists, the spiritualists were. But um, as I started to look into them, it became clear to me that these people were the real fire engines to this interest in Asian religions. And they were real characters in the, in and of themselves. So I've always been interested in doing history as a series of biographies. I don't really know how to do history any other way. Um, so I've been I've been uh, so I've been writing biographies of spiritualists ever since then, just because they're such fascinating folks. Um, and I must say that when on my first pass through the history of American spiritualism, when I turned to the story of John Murray Spear, who's given a lot of attention in some of the histories of uh, early spiritualism, American spiritualism, uh, I just couldn't believe what I was reading about his projects and what he was doing. It seemed to me like, wow, the 19th century was a whole lot stranger than what I had ever been led to believe. Uh, this guy seemed to me to have invented steampunk science fiction, even if it's possible to have invented steampunk uh, back in the 1850s. It just seemed incredible what he was trying to do. So that's how I first that's how I first latched on to, to him and was um, interested that nobody had um, written on him before much. And as I turned it to the sources and put things together, his life just seemed more and more incredible to me. Oh, I, I agree. When I uh, when we first came on this story, I it sounded unbelievable. And just from what was on the internet and then once i dug into your book it was so much more fascinating than uh i even thought it was uh to begin with when i tried to when i first started thinking about writing a book on him i thought 
oh, wow, this is the stuff of science fiction. Um, and I, I contemplated uh, write, trying to write it as a novel, but actually part of the wonderment of this is that it wasn't science fiction. It wasn't, it's not, if so, I decided to write it straight history and not, um, you know, exaggerate anything that I couldn't find in the sources, but just tell it straight. And I think that, in fact, by doing that, his story is stranger. Oh, I think that if you did it as a novel, there would be so many things that people would think is a stretch yeah. to get to. Having it documented the way you did, it really is mind-blowing. Like, everything that he did throughout his life. So, getting into that, who was John Murray Spear? Especially, like, his early life, uh, his... Involvement in the Universalist Church, abolitionism. Well, John Murray Spear was born in Boston. I think his father was a fisherman, as I recall. Um, pretty poor family. Uh, he had an older brother, Charles, who had been born the year before him um, in 1804. John Murray Spear was born. And uh, his parents had become members of a congregation of the preacher who first preached universal salvation in the United States. His name was John Murray, and he had a church in Boston. And John Murray Spear was christened by Reverend John Murray, um, and of course was given his name by his parents. The Universalists were in the midst of a tremendous growth during that time, inspired by John Murray. Um, I think the peak of that growth of Universalism um, was probably around 1820, and uh, it spread out all over New England and then um, into the western portions of what was then the United States. Uh, so there were many, many universalists, and they, they were um, concerned with their inherited Calvinist um, notion that every, um, well, the Calvinist atmosphere at the time was that uh, very dark and uh, regarding people's eternal salvation. The, uh, John Murray and the Universalists proclaimed that, in fact, everyone would be saved, universal salvation. Um, and uh, that that distinguished them from um, the rest of the denominations um, that they were surrounded by. Um, but it, it was taken as a uh, liberation of sorts, this notion of universal salvation. Um, and in the midst of the what you would call the decay of Calvinism in, in uh, New England, um, it was part of um, an entire change of attitude towards um, not only the next world, but uh, this world as well. Um, so that, that was what universalism was. John grew up in that 
environment. And um, he, he was er- he was early trained as a um, sent out to apprentice and became a, a, a shoemaker, uh, which was not automated at the time like it like it became during his lifetime. Uh, there were still cobblers who who made uh, each person made their individual uh, entire shoe from the beginning. His brother Charles was apprenticed to um, a printing operation and became a printer himself. And the the shoemakers at the time yeah. they were like thinkers, correct? They were very educated people. The shoemakers were typically regarded as. Um, being well read. I think that uh, comes from uh, the fact that the shoemaking shops uh, would try to uh, while away the hours by um, having all the shoemakers in the shop be read to, a little bit like uh, monks in a monastery during during, um, meals, always having somebody to uh, read something because silence was required. And in the same way, um, they just read constantly to each other. And uh, not only were they, did they have a reputation for being well-read and up on things, but they uh, were also regarded as a, um, a nest of social radicals in the sense that uh, the, the labor movement began uh, primarily among shoemakers in New England. Uh, the first labor strikes were among shoemakers um, in Massachusetts during that time. Um, so they were they were up on the news constantly. They were they were well read. Uh, John uh, was was obviously um, up on the news, and um, although he didn't really have much of a formal education. Same with his brother. Um, obviously, you have to be well-read to be a printer's apprentice. Um, and um, they, they both uh, spent most of their early childhood um, in rather impoverished circumstances, and, um, but hard at work you know, at improving themselves um, and their education. But they were self-educated, essentially. Right. And then... Uh, so what happens to John after he, uh, is a, uh, apprentice for the shoemakers? Well, he, his brother first decided to study for, to study such as he could do for the Universalist ministry, um, and, um, and, and started that and, uh, convinced his brother as well to start. So John Murray. Spear started um, studying for that and be, and was uh, taken into fellowship with uh, the Universalists and became a minister. Um, and they both served um, ministries um, throughout Massachusetts, Eastern Massachusetts, uh, especially John went to uh, Barnstable out on the Cape and uh, his brother was uh, stationed in various places, um, also north of Boston and, and so on. So they were both uh, universalist ministers by the time they were young men and moving from congregation to congregation. John eventually wound up uh, as the universalist minister in 
one um, in New Bedford and uh, built uh, the first Universalist church there. It was the one that um, Frederick Douglass uh, wound up uh, associating himself with, uh, at least informally, uh, after he had made his way north, having escaped slavery. Uh, so John and Frederick Douglass were close acquaintances at the time. That uh, that happened. John was, uh, although I think Frederick Douglass, yes. And um, as part of the, it, w- it was common for universalists to be regarded as extreme liberals, or as they said, progressives um, in social matters. So John took up all of those. Uh, progressive reforms of the time, and that included abolitionism and would later include uh, women's rights and uh, prison reform, uh, the abolition of the death penalty, temperance movement, um, and everything else basically that came his way. Both he and Charles were progressives in that sense. Were they? John was. Were they even, in terms of the Universalist Church, were they pretty in the mainstream in their beliefs, or were they even out on the fringe of that for what progressives were? Well, John was uh, very, um, I'm not quite sure what to say. Uh, He was pretty energetic. And you could, both both, um, he and his brother were, um, in a state of mind where having thrown off the shackles of the old theology, as they call Calvinism, were prepared to uh, rely on their own leanings as they thought of this as a spiritual light that would lead them um, into new reforms and whatever the, the age demanded. So their business, in a sense, was to liberate um, liberate people from all kinds of societal restrictions and, and uh, shackles. That was how um, John became quite active uh, in the abolitionist movement, in particular. Uh, he, he was a well-regarded uh, uh, workhorse for the New England Anti-Slavery Society, uh, Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. He was a lecturer and a traveling lecturer for, for them and paid for that. Um, and doing that, he wandered all over New England, uh, giving lectures, abolitionist lectures. He worked closely with William Lloyd Garrison. Um, they were very close. And, and the other uh, abolitionists um, at the time. Yeah, and his lectures kind of led to some harassments. And there was an incident, uh, Christmas 1844, uh, when he was giving a lecture, uh, where he was basically yeah. beaten close to death. Can you tell us uh, more about that? Well, he again, on one of these lecture tours, um, by the Abolitionist Society in Boston. Uh, he wound up in Maine, uh, in Portland, Maine, 
and um, was on the platform giving lecture there with uh, another abolitionist, uh, Stephen Simons Foster. Um, and it was not the case that everyone in New England was um, naturally an abolitionist for various reasons. And they found um, themselves in these lectures typically facing um, uh, a mixed uh, reception. Um, and that was common for all the lecturers. Anyway, at this particular one, uh, after the lecture, as John was leaving the uh, church the, or town hall where he was giving it, he was set on by uh, a, a group of men who were obviously not in tune with his thoughts on this and was beaten and dragged himself across the street um, through the mob and was finally rescued and brought into the house of a sympathizer and was uh, fell into a coma that lasted for a few days before he finally came out of it. But it took him a long time to recover. He was beaten about the head. And when he came out of the uh, coma, he seems to have been um, visited by spirits, perhaps. Uh, he wasn't sure of what happened, but in any event, he was, um, I think you might say, a different person. More Right, that was kind of his first experience with spirits, correct? Yeah. It's, he wasn't quite clear on that, but um, it did, I think in retrospect, you can see that um, he was he was not so worldly attuned after that. He was more tuned towards the um, toward what was happening in his head, basically. Right, right. Because not too long after that, he writes uh, in the Prisoner's Friend this review of this book by Andrew Jackson Davis. Principles of Nature, Her Revelations, and a Voice to Mankind. Uh, can you talk about what he wrote about that book and how did it affect uh, John Murray Spear? Because it seemed to really have a profound effect on him. Well, he was at that time editing um, a periodical that his brother Charles really took over and was the... Um, the main editor of, and they had one of their um, most particular projects of reform was um, the abolition of the death penalty and the uh, improvement of prison conditions. And in that periodical, um, John reviewed books. And one of the books he wrote uh, a review of was this book by Andrew Jackson Davis. Uh, that book was uh, written down um, by Jackson Davis's um, close associate, uh, who was also a Universalist minister. Um, uh, Davis had dictated these discourses uh, while in trance uh, about the nature of the universe. Apparently, he believed, and so did his 
close associates, that these were um, being dictated to him by the spirit of Emanuel Swedenborg. Um, the, the book itself was a sort of cosmic uh, revelation of the past and future and um, described realms of visionary um, places where spirits dwelt. Um, in the something like Emanuel Swedenborg himself, whose writings uh, describe him visiting places like Saturn or um, various realms of uh, spirit land. Um, this is what Davis's book was like. And when it was published in 1847, it created a huge sensation. Um, it wasn't just Spear, who was deeply inspired by it as a, a totally new um, cosmological revelation, but uh, he he was certainly one of the ones who was inspired by it. I think his reaction was different from the other reformers who he was hanging with. Um, you can see throughout uh, Spears' um, life at this time that he was starting to move away from being totally um, focused on particular um, reform movements like abolitionism and, and women's rights and prison reform. Um, he, he was no longer so focused on being one of the active leaders. Um, he was more um, inclined to leave that sort of hard grit work uh, that, uh, that his um, colleagues had depended on him for and be more um, concerned with uh, something that he, he felt was more um, theoretical but deeper, uh, sort of visionary world. So um, he, the other folks that he was hanging out with, like uh, William Lloyd Garrison and so on, they were certainly aware of uh, this sort of uh, tension between people who were really in it to work for the, their causes as opposed to people who seemed to be drifting off into um, contacting the other world. This is really a big uh, issue in the reform community back in those days. So uh, around this time uh, is when spiritualism starts taking uh, off, correct, in America? Yes. Yes, as, an, as a self-defined movement. So what was the beginning of spiritualism and kind of what is spiritualism? Well, spiritualism, as it crystallized um, my followers in, in a bit of a retrospective uh, way, uh, was, uh, well, it began in March 1848 when two sisters, um, whose last name was Fox, um, they began hearing raps in the night, rapping sounds of rappings and 
what turned this from something that was like any ghost story into something that was a little different was that um, in the sisters' presence, um, they could send and receive through wrappings, um, using it as a sort of code, messages from the spirit who would talk to them and give them answers to questions. Um, so this was something that was new, a little new. And um, it was following not too long after the first um, enthusiasm over the um, electronic telegraph, which had been such a success starting in 1845. Um, so part of the excitement about this and the reason it spread like wildfire from them was that uh, it seemed to people at the time to be something like an opening of a spiritual telegraph between spirits in the afterlife and those of us still here in mortal flesh um, that was something new, and it, people were prepared to be excited not only because uh, the electronic telegraph had been something that was se seemingly so miraculous, so people were open to um, the possibility that maybe something like this had begun uh, intercourse between earth and heaven but also because um, it was something different and progressive in the sense that here was something that was a sort of religion that was based on empiricism it seemed like hey not only do we have uh, physical evidence for this sort of communication um, here are the sounds, the rappings, the responses, and so on. But also, it was something that was sort of ultra-democratic. You could do it and perform experiments with it on your own kitchen table. And you could uh, sort of do your own theology around what the spirits told you. Is that what attracted John Murray Spear to it? Because I know he kind of started getting into it through mesmeric trance correct yes um well by that time the um the interest that had begun earlier um in developing and experimenting with mesmerism or what we would call hypnotism today um had also spread around new england and there were plenty of people within the progressive movement who turned themselves into experimenters, experts, lecturers, performers of um, mesmeric trance. Andrew Jackson Davis actually, although he was uh, later associated closely with the spiritualist movement per se, was discovered and made famous at the beginning by his ability to go into to be entranced and to um, seemingly be able to see into people's bodies and diagnose their hidden ills 
sort of like an x-ray machine. Excuse me, just a... Did it work? <laughs> well, RJ, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> there, was, there was conflicting evidence. There was conflicting testimony about that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the claim about the claim about mesmerism was that you could turn yourself into a seer through developing yourself as a mesmeric subject. So the subject of trance was uh, a sort of um, sort of fit logically together in the reformer's mind um, with the notion that. Now we were on our own, and each one of us could find the light of truth and illumination within us through visionary, basically visionary experiences. Uh, so it was something that reformers practiced. Uh, John Murray Spear didn't necessarily um, turn himself into a mesmeric subject or operator uh, along the lines that were um, that other people were, were doing, but it was in the same atmosphere. And certainly the notion that a truly religious experience was one that was uh, an interior experience where you were open to, to get, getting uh, affected by um, a spiritual reality that you couldn't see um, was certainly congruent with what he was you know, thinking himself at the time. Right. And then in uh, March 1852, John began being a medium. Uh, correct? Yes? Yes. Yes. And can you tell us what happened then in the story of kind of the next few days? Because I know he, a bunch of messages came to him. Okay, um, my memory's an aged one. So, is this refer? What is this subject referring to? I think this is kind of the first time. I, what I'm trying to get to is the first time that he uh, started communicating with the Association of uh, Beneficients. Well, he had been practicing uh, what's what was later called automatic writing, where. Um, it's a little bit like a Ouija board, um, but you take a pencil in your hand and wait for it to move by itself. Um, it takes practice from most people, and um, some people never it never happened, but it did with him. And uh, he began receiving such written messages that he believed did not come from anywhere in him. Um, for some period and um, developed that, fell into it more and more. And he began getting messages from um, a group of spirits who identified themselves as what they called the Association of Beneficence. Um, and it turned out that according to these messages, um, they were some selected and highly noble group of departed spirits who had decided now that this spiritual telegraph had opened up between uh, the afterlife and the mortal life, 
to gather together and deliver messages to the people of this world. And they were folks like uh, Benjamin Franklin, Daniel Webster, Thomas Paine, Manuel Swedenborg, John Hancock, um, Seneca. Yeah, some of the greatest minds. Some of the greatest minds. They were now at, at leisure to and had the power to communicate. Uh, and they formed a an association that reminds me very much of what you might expect a sort of New England town meeting would produce as a as a ad hoc committees and so on. Yeah, and they had decided to break up this reformatory work, spirits reformatory work for the world, into committees, um, and they were named. I think they were six and they had named themselves these committees had named themselves the electricizers the elementizers the educationizers the governmentizers the healthfulizers and the agriculturalizers these are like cabinet positions i i suppose right but each of them each of these groups uh would devote themselves to delivering messages on reform projects and theories uh, to the world. And they had decided to make John Murray Spear the, um, the main communicator, the main medium, their main um, wire to the world. Right. And then a few months after he began receiving these messages, I believe it was uh, the spirit of Benjamin Franklin is what... Uh, John Murray Spear said, uh, gave him a message about the new motor. What is the new motor? Benjamin Franklin was apparently the head of the electricizers, uh, not surprising given his experiments when he was on Earth. And uh, oh, yeah. he, he and the kite. Uh, right. The kite, yeah, all that. <laughs> So he had um, decided to reveal um, a major project uh, to John Murray Spear and his little group of um, followers. Now, his John Murray Spear had followers who had um, decided to um, participate in these projects. And they were consecrated with various names, um, and um, the one who was John Murray Spears main associate on this project anyway was named Simon Crosby Hewitt uh, also a universalist minister but a labor organizer um, and he was also uh, a trained mechanic I think he worked in textile mills before so he he did in fact have some mechanical skills as a machinist and um, you know, general mechanic. Um, so it was to Simon Crosby Hewitt and a, a few other um, followers, and, and I must say mostly these were, um, John Murray Spears' followers were heavily salted with uh, folks who had some money. In particular, there were three or four patrons that became close associates with uh, Spear that were well endowed. And um, that probably explains something about the way uh, Spear 
worked and his uh, ability to conduct some of these projects. <clears throat> John himself, well, yeah. right. John himself had no um, abilities in you know electrical work um, or mechanical work, um, apart from you know having been uh, a shoemaker. Um, but um, Hewitt did. Um, I don't know how how much you know about electricity. Maybe not so much, but maybe not many people knew much about electricity. But it was the coming thing at the time. There were new electrical uh, devices that were being uh, invented and brought online. And despite the fact that nobody really knew what electricity was, um, people were... Uh, inventing devices that could use it in various ways, the signaling devices and so on. So um, the project that um, the spirit of Benjamin Franklin began dictating plans to John Murray Spear for uh, was called the new motor at the beginning, the new motive power. Um, it was a, was a phrase that was used for um, other projects, non-spiritual projects, but um, steam engines and and new sources of energy. Uh, people were experimenting and developing new kinds of new motors. Um, but this new motor was going to be something different. Now, exactly what it was, was unclear at the beginning. Uh, and indeed never really um, came together, but it was more like what it, the idea of this is that for one thing it would be uh, self-powered and metaphysically speaking you might say that was important to reformers because they were convinced that uh, people themselves had to become self-powered and sovereign individuals and not uh, slaves or bound to any um, earthly power. Uh, in addition, interesting. In, in addition, so does the self-powered? Does it necessarily refer to it being a mechanism that doesn't need, well, for lack of a better phrase, any power versus uh, a mechanism that was free to do what it? whatever it wanted or needed to what was the idea there because it that is something that i've been just the phrasing is a little obtuse i guess and maybe they didn't really know uh either <laughs> at the time it sounds like exactly but... exactly i think you're onto something it was it was preg pregnant with possibilities the phrase was so you were you were free to imagine it in either way, I think. In addition, you you were also free to imagine a new motive power as referring to um, people. Here was something that, well, people needed a new motive. Society needed a new motive for existence. Right, need, right? sure. It was no longer, the old institutions and arrangements were no longer functioning. So it needed to, Society itself needed a new motive for for acting. Yeah, something to drive, something new to drive society forward because everything else is kind of failing around that time. Yeah, but since it was 
one of the possibilities to think about this thing was that it was self-powered meant that if it was self-powered, it was, we were talking about creating a perpetual motion machine. So um, it wouldn't... So a machine that's just always moving by itself. It was always moving and by itself, it didn't need to be um, energized by any material or means or it would just keep going. It would go of itself and it would always be going of itself. So that was certainly one of the um, ideas that was driving what this machine was supposed to be able to accomplish. But it was also something else there, there which was that it would um, continue to um, it would t- continue to go by itself, and it was like an ideal that was in the heads of these folks who were building this machine and, and day by day learning more about it as they were given instructions on its um, building, that this was something that was a sort of model of what the human would be in the future. It was a new man. It was going to be called the electrical infant, God's last best gift to mankind. And they began perceiving each of these parts that were being described as parts of analogous to the parts of the human body. So yes, they were also constructing uh, an automaton in their minds. Um, Right. I think some people thought it was kind of going to be a, a new messiah. Is that correct? It was going to, yes, it was going to be uh, the, the new messiah because it would, um, it would, uh, it would do all, any number of things that were problematic to folks at that time. It would unite heaven and earth. It would make, <clears throat> it would make people less dependent on the merely material world where you had to harness up the um, power from horses or from um, water power or something. It would free labor because energy was going to be free. Uh, It would be the model for um, the way people's lives could be constructed, uh, reformed and turned into something where people were no longer enslaved to mechanical means. Uh, It was to be any number of things. And all of those things um, accumulated, all those ideas accumulated around this mysterious thing that they were being instructed to, to, uh, um, to build. The thing with it's like, it's like back engineering uh, something where you're blindly being told what to build, but you don't quite know what it is. That you're, that you're building and you have to infer what the function of this machine is and what its possibilities are only at the end when you can finally see it working. So it, it, did they think that this would be something, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is they thought that this would be something that was both practical in that it would be uh an actual mechanism, almost, I don't know, like a, say a car motor 
or something, except for a car motor requires gas. It wouldn't require that uh, where you could install this and it would it would free everybody up and, and be able to push technology forward while at the same time being this ideal that would then let your mind be able to be free from thinking about those obstacles in your life uh, to be able to better connect with the world. Is that kind of what the thought was? Exactly. Exactly. All of that. All of that and more and more, man. It was going to do everything. And not only that, you mentioned about, um, you know, would it walk around? Well, there was one... Um, artist, painter, who was a spiritualist and uh, knew John. His name was Josiah Walcott, and he had a vision about the, the, uh, the new motor. And in his vision, this is while they were still working on it, putting it together. Uh, in his vision, um, the new motor grew and started walking across the landscape. And as it walked, it threw off smaller versions of itself, replicating itself into new motors. And these would be um, marching across the landscape and stepping on and destroying the old cultural um, artifacts, the churches and the, all of this, and uh, spreading out like, um, it, it reminds me really a lot of the descriptions of um, H.G. Wells in the uh, War of the Worlds, where... Yeah, the tripods, yeah. Yeah, you know, setting up and replicating and so on. This is, it, you know, and I I have had some notions that H.G. Uh, Wells, um, in my fantasy here, um, got hold of a copy of um, John Murray Spears' collected um, spirit discourse is called The Educator, in which a lot of the, um, his projects were described and um, was familiar with it. But I, I, I can't um, say that that's anything more than my own fancy. Um, but it does sound like it would look almost something like H.G. Wells, like Time Machine, you know, like I something like that. And, and to that idea, um, can you tell me, tell us about kind of where was this built? What was the pro? I mean, you've kind of told us the process of getting the instructions, but what was the process of building it? And uh, where was it done? And, and that kind of stuff. I think, as I recall, John started getting these uh, instructions while he was living in Boston uh, or just north of Boston in um in the city of Lynn, um, Massachusetts. And this is in 1853 or so. And um, just before that time, one of his friends who had been heavily involved in the early days of spiritualism, which this was, who was named uh, Jesse Hutchinson, um, had uh, built a big, what he called a cottage, but it was much more extensive than that and what the name implies on a high bluff on one side of Lynn called High Rock and 
this thing had had an observatory tower attached to it, so it would look out over um, over the bay where Lynn was. And um, Andrew Jackson Davis had spent some weeks there um, in High Rock Tower um, and had a, a vision of the spirits coming down from heaven, the various nationalities of spirits parading down out of the sky into um, into the tower and giving him a, and giving him a spirit a series of messages there. And um, not long after that, it uh, John and his little group of followers um, moved into that place, uh, High Rock Tower. Uh, they built. It kind of sounds like Frankenstein's tower from the original movie. Well, like uh, like the high place where you would um, some mad scientist would look for um, lightning strikes to power his new man and raise his Frankenstein monster. Yeah. Very much, totally. much that very much. So I think it was, it was high. And so it was thought to be a place that was close to the heavens and had purified, uh, um, airs around it. Um, part of the, it, it was said to be self-powered, and that's true, but um, there was some portion of this machine that was to have aerials that stretched up and pointed into the sky. So it was supposed to collect electricity um, somehow out of the sky and then channel it into the machine. That was actually to be the source of power. In John's... Right. Was it electricity or was it just kind of the general energy of the world? I think it was just like the general energy of the world. Something yeah. like... In John's spirit explanations for the way this worked was that there was constantly uh, energy pouring out of the North Pole and you could see it in the aurora borealis and it circled down south and around the globe and this etheric energy atmosphere um could be collected and and was in fact as the spirit said collected by human beings in by their hair um <laughs> this is odd but this was this this was the reason why uh, John and his male followers all let their hair grow. They had long hair from this point because it would make them more attuned to this etheric energy, you see. So these aerials that were pointing up out of the machine were there to collect this energy. Now the machine was built out of, you know, regular machine parts, brass, steel, iron, um, and it was um, described slowly over some months. So they didn't quite know what they were doing as they were being given the directions, but were building it up piece by piece. It was set up on a, on a very massive wooden table at the top of High Rock Tower in that room, the observatory room. And um, on that wooden table, 
Um, it had there was a metal platform. Um, we don't have any pictures of of this thing. Uh, we have descriptions of how the thing was built and what it looked like um, that were put into published by this group in Simon Crosby Hewitt's newspaper that he published for the crowd that he the, the newspaper was called the new era we have two segments out of three of his complete descriptions so we can't know exactly what it looked like but we know a lot about it it had one of its features was it had an armature um that had uh, that was supposed to rotate once it finally started going and this armature had um, some little steel balls attached to it that hung down from it. Um, and I, I don't really know what these steel balls were supposed to do, except they were supposed to be evidence that the thing was going uh, and was alive then it had started. So once those steel balls were attached, of course, everyone was waiting to see when they would start rotating. Um, so those were kind of attached last, like as it was getting completed? Yeah, like that. I think, I don't know exactly when in the process they were they were attached, but um, we don't have the original of the um, instructions. These were all taken down. Don, John would be in trance and would dictate the instructions he was receiving day by day uh, to um, his um, followers, and they would take it down, and then they would make the necessary adjustments. So it was like, hey, we've got Benjamin Franklin on the phone, sort of, um, and he's telling us what to do next. Um, so the thing kind of built itself up and accreted slowly over time. One part was added one day, another part was added another day, then another part was, oh, well, you didn't do that right. You have, you have to attach something else to that. And it was, it was trial, well, I don't want to call it trial and error, but there were um, plenty of things that weren't clear when, when the instructions were first given. Yeah, plenty of error. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, well, it was building to some climax for sure. So, <laughs> so it it was built like parts of it were meant to mirror functions in the human body. Correct. Yes, uh, at least theoretically, uh, the the machine was meant to be some new human in a way, whatever that meant, and. Um, so the aerials were the hair, human hair, and then, uh, I don't know, there were arms of some sort. Um, but some of this was, I don't, I don't know quite exactly how to um, think about whether or not these were just allegorical correspondences or whether or not the parts were really made to look like uh, a human body. In fact, I, I kind of think that it didn't look much like a human body, but it, it was symmetrical. Um, it, it had parts that were assigned as corresponding to different parts of the human body and so on. I, I, have, a, I have a notion that it kind of looked like um, the, the lunar lander 
but but uh, maybe with exposed parts like this armature that was supposed to um, rotate um, and parts that were meant to work like a motor. Like if you took the casing off of, of a mechanical motor and you could see the parts moving inside, it was, you know, it didn't need a casing as such. So maybe you could see it like that or maybe it... Yeah, there was no casing around yeah, it? Yeah, no casing. With with aerials, of course, poking up. But it was, I, I think it, it was probably squat in a way it would look to us like something squat, like a lunar How lander. How big was How it? How what? Big? Um, like what was the size of I, it? I, I don't know exactly. Um, maybe... Maybe like a VW bug, but maybe, but maybe maybe smaller than that. Oh maybe wow! Smaller than that. Wow, that's a lot bigger than I was thinking. It was yeah, fairly yeah. sizable. But I mean, it was put on a wooden table, and um, you know, so it, it couldn't have been weighing tons or anything. Uh, at some point, it gets completed, uh, right? And then, what happens when they complete it? Well, it seemed to be completed. And then they spent a lot of days thinking, well, maybe we didn't do this quite right or that quite right. It hadn't started yet. So, you know, maybe we should go polish these steel balls or something. Uh, so they spent they spent some time doing those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, under high expectation and the word had got out in the community. So everybody knew that this was happening. So people were waiting for something to happen and it didn't happen. Uh, Jackson Davis visited it um, one day and thought, oh, this is really interesting, but, you know, it really wasn't moving. So what's the payoff here? Um, some people had noted that there was some small movement of these suspended steel balls, but they were attributing that to uh, static electricity in the air. Um, so, but basically, the the big armature was not turning. So um, the spirits, or John really, decided that it needed some kind of jump start, <clears throat> that that's what was wrong. It needed some kind of influx of spiritual energy. So he um, was figuring out a way to um, try to do that and constructed himself um, a sort of armored suit. I think these were made of um, plates of metal, maybe zinc and copper or something, um, that were strung around him. And, you know, again, he's he's got some simple idea that he could attract etheric energy to himself and hold it in himself like a battery, accumulate it like a Leiden jar, and then translate it into the machine. So the, what we have is descriptions of, of uh, him walking towards the machine, having himself gotten all juiced up. And then as it's described in the newspaper account by his colleague Hewitt, an umbilicus of etheric energy was transmitted between um, John and the machine. Um, 
there's some language in that description that suggests that we're talking about some kind of um, ritualized sexual encounter, but that's that's very difficult to um, picture uh, a 19th century uh, mechanic writing for the public in a newspaper um, describing in much detail, you know, the sort of detail that you'd like to have. So you, you, we have to leave that to our imagination, exactly what they thought was going on in this transmission. Um, but at the same time, or nearly the same time, another of John's followers, uh, whose name was Sarah Newton, um, she was also a medium, and she had um, become convinced that um, she was going to become the mother of the new motor, of the electrical infant. And, Why was she convinced well, of this? She was a medium, and she also received messages. And since she was part of this group, um, and I think you could say because they were all waiting for something to happen and not sure what they were lacking yet, um, this was this was the answer that came. She was she found herself as a result of this series of messages or convinced that she was experiencing labor pains and she was moved um, north of Boston. She was living in Boston at the time, north of Boston to Lynn where she came into close proximity as it were, uh, or as it was described to the, to the machine. And at, after that, um, there was joy and jubilation all around because um, this group proclaimed to the world that that the machine had moved. It was, you know, starting to move. Um, but um, what can you say? It, it was it was the movement was apparent only to the followers. Um, whether or not it was when did it start to move? <laughs> After she came in contact with it, is all I could say. <laughs> what? Well, yeah. Can you describe that? Because I know that that in the in your book you mentioned that they said that there needed to be both a male and a female energy and a feminine energy to basically kind of give birth to the new motor, yeah. the, the new motive power. Right. Well, you know, like with humans, you need the male and the female. So John had infused it with a male energy, and uh, Sarah um, had, by her proximity, uh, somehow infused it with the female. And so, thus, the electrical infant was born and would move. And there was no, uh, there's no description of what that physical proximity was? Uh, no, you know, again, we're talking about 19th century newspaper reporting. Yeah. So yeah. such matters were somewhat delicate, and I'm sure... Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't... It was thought to be, well, none of y'all's business exactly what was going on here, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, 
contact was made. So allegedly, yes, the announcement was made. It's moving. Yeah. The followers, what did they think was moving on well, it? Well, they thought that this grand armature that the steel balls were attached to was supposed to start rotating. And that was going to be... So it was starting to rotate. Yeah, starting to rotate. It would, yeah. it would, it would sort of be, I mean, in this respect, it was supposed to be like a generator. You know, you've got the armature and it moves and then um, you get power out of that. You connect to it. So this is how it's going to provide free power, among the other things. But I, I, you can't really pin these things down because, um, as we've noted, a, a lot of different notions and ideas were accreted to this machine as it was being built, this contraption. What it was going to do, how it was going to be providing free energy for everyone, how it was going to um, go on forever, how it was to um, create a model, or an ideal for human society and for individual humans. All of this stuff was just kind of floating around in their heads. So um, one of the ideas was something on the, on the order of uh, this would be a kind of electrical, like an electric motor um, that you could attach parts to and it would drive other motors presumably agricultural implements and you know all kinds of other stuff so this was this was the basic way it was that they fixated on by the time it was complete that it was going to be the sign that the thing was alive that this armature would go to but yeah. then they just they decide or they're given the message that it's not it, it's just a baby and that they need to build a kind of womb for it? Yeah, well, again, here's further, um, you know, the further development was that when people, outsiders came to look at it, the thing wasn't moving. So tell me how this thing is working, they would say. Well, it did move, maybe you can imagine saying, well, it did move, we did get movement, but it's not working now, and I don't know what's exactly going on, it, but we did have initial movement. So we, we're making progress here, and just give us a little more time and we'll improve it, and it'll really start pumping away here. So um, it was always a struggle to figure out what to do with this thing next, what adjustments to make, uh, what was going to improve it to the to the eyes of the outside world and make it really effective? So I don't know what kind of movement they got out of it at the beginning. Frankly, nobody knows. But it, it wasn't moving upon further examination. So what they decided was, well, okay, uh, what's missing here? Well, it it's just newborn, so it needs it somehow needs to be nourished and protected the way an, uh, a newborn is. It needs to be further matured before it can really take on its own and, and do what it's supposed to do. So like a mother's womb or like the swaddling that a mother gives to her infant after it's born, um, it needs to be nurtured more. Um, and I don't know exactly what that consisted of. It certainly consisted of um, something like 
purifying the environment around it. And I think that was part of what was going on in their minds when they decided to move the thing. Um, they took it, they disassembled it and, and took it out to um, um, Randolph, New York, where one of the followers had a big farm and they reassembled it there. And um, that would be, you know, a more private place for experimentation or whatever. And um, tried to continue to work on it. I think that's what the what what, what are called the wombomic processes uh, that they were trying to struggle through with understanding uh, was to nurture it, protect it, and make it stronger that way. So, John, you're. You're saying that a lot of this information comes from the newspapers and stuff around then. Now, we have this now. What did people who weren't part of the spiritualist movement, who weren't part of this, what what was the outside reaction to this project? Well, um, I mean, it was a mix, but mostly it was something like, uh, okay, here's blasphemy going on in High Rock, um, trying to create a new race of human beings, messing with the creator's prerogatives. So some people regarded it as a satanic project. Um, others, others regarded it as simple foolishness and craziness and hokum and, you know, hopeless uh, hopelessness uh, and found it to be uh, a matter of, of high comedy. Um, so I think there was any number of different reactions, but, um, you know, from skepticism to horror. Uh, and even within, by this time, I must say that John Murray Spear had, by his actions, uh, had distanced himself from what you might call a more level-headed or, depending on your point of view, more conventionally bound um, members of the reform community. He was a very leading um, member of various reform organizations and movements. But once he started producing these projects, um, everybody started to look the other way and pretend that they didn't know the guy. Um, which is really why, you know, he didn't show up. He's not, you know, taught in grade schools like like William Lloyd Garrison is, or, you know, along the names of the famous. All these, uh, all the reform movement uh, histories just wrote this guy out because he was an embarrassment. At a certain point, a, a mob came for the new motor. Yeah, and that's variously described. Um, John himself, I think probably in order to uh, dramatize it, described it as a, as a mob. Um, this, this was while the machine had been reassembled in Randolph, New York, uh, in the barn. They came one night and smashed it. But um, there's some question about that. I mean, obviously, John is thinking about the mob that attacked him earlier in his career and the mob that um, also there was a famous incident where a mob came in and destroyed uh, a printing press of, a, of an abolitionist 
um, and beat the guy up. Uh, I forget his name now. But these were the images that were going through his head when he was describing what, what this mob had done and uh, the size and extent of the damage. Um, in fact, the other newspaper reports said that described it as a, um, a small group of young men who were out to play a prank and maybe disassembled it or beat it with plows or something. I don't know what they did to it. In any event, it was an opportunity for John to turn his attention, I think, away from the sort of day-by-day necessity to get the thing running. It just wouldn't run. And, and Right, because that kind of brought the end of the physical machine part of the well, new motive project. Yes, yes. Although he did also invent, in his own mind, um, potential applications for the machine when it became operative. These including powering boats um, and, uh, you know, other sort of applications for it. But, um, yes, that project was more or less shelved at that point. Although Crosby Hewitt, uh, who was his mechanic for that, had built a, um, a small model of it. And he took it around from time to time um, and showed it off at conventions of reformers and lectures and gave lectures on, about it. Uh, using the model to give people uh, a um, an idea about it. So I think it's safe to say that there might be parts of the original new motor out there somewhere scattered about, but it's possible that Crosby Hewitt's completed model of it, and I don't know how big this thing was, <clears throat> maybe a foot in cubic foot or something, I imagine he had to carry it from lecture to lecture. That might still be around somewhere. I don't know. Well, that's interesting you say that, John, because there's somebody on the Internet who does claim that they have found the new motive. Uh, And it's small like that. And it has John Murray Spear engraved in it. I don't know if it's a hoax. I actually reached out to them. I don't know if it's a hoax or not. Uh, they never replied to me, but, you know, you do read interesting things like that online. I read one conspiracy theory that said that it was never that John made up the uh, the mob basically so he could rebuild the new motor in another place. And yeah, it's still what, growing and yeah. becoming the powerful messiah it's meant to be, you know. Oh, yeah. And it's now powering our very world. Yes, I I believe it. I believe it. It's at Area 51. Yeah, uh, somewhere in an Air Force base in New Mexico. Yeah, it's over there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all that. Well, I I see. Yeah, I saw the picture story about this guy with the John Murray Spear uh, engraved machine and I just it, you want my opinion it's a big hoax but um, I mean it's a big joke so do you you think it just got disassembled and they basically um, 
just you know turn their attention elsewhere. They elsewhere, couldn't get the yeah. thing running, and then some rowdies broke in one night, probably drunk, and you know beat on it, and they didn't bother to uh, to re uh, you know to bother to redo it. Um, uh, they start believing that one of the reasons the new motor may not be taking off is that the world isn't ready for it yet. And so they start trying to build a new society and uh, it kind of, uh, can you talk about that society for the new man? And I think true marriage versus false marriage is part of that, the free love movement. One of the old things, the mechanical things, nearly mechanical things, that was binding the world to matter, as you might say, and chaining the spirit was the institution of marriage, according to a lot of reformers at that time. And so they were influenced by um, earlier French ideas, particularly by this French socialist named Charles Fourier, who wished to release the natural affinities, as he called, that existed between people, uh, something like electrical energies or vibratory frequencies or something like that, by which people would be freely bound together, like magnetized together. And they conceived that these um, free associations um, that would be ideal were being hindered by these merely human arrangements contracts called marriage. Uh, so it was thought that the improvement of the human race would come when we could abolish traditional marriage and allow people to procreate um, according to their natural affinities. So that was the doctrine of free love. So in order to have that happen, you needed to create a society, a small society perhaps at first, where people could follow their leanings in this regard. And John had leanings and his followers had leanings. And uh, John pursued those leanings uh, with one of his followers named Caroline Hinckley. And uh, the result of pursuing those leanings was that Caroline Hinckley who was not married to John in the traditional sense, he still had a wife and children in Boston, um, had gone out to um, establish a community in um, northern New York at a place called Cayentown, which is just south of Jamestown, and had set up a commune there. Um, and that was to be this new experimental utopian community. And um, Caroline gave birth to um, a boy, as Paper said, a bouncing non-spiritual infant of nine pounds or something. And um, of course, it was a huge scandal to everybody back in Boston and elsewhere. Um, but this was supposed to have been created by the um, higher spiritual affinities that by which humans should decide um, 
you know, who should mate. And according to those ideal matings, produce um, a better human being than we can. So this is kind of like the next step for the the new motive power is. Uh... Yeah, it's it was it was the the notion of um, you know creating this community in which the, the human race would evolve into something brand new uh, was was all of a piece with. Uh, uh, the expectations around the new motor to and what was the cavity project at key and tone well um john's spirits <laughs> since there were so many um you know in all these different um associations and committees were just feeding him all kinds of projects to do one of them was um to pursue um a um pursue the discovery and uncovering of a um, mythical to us civilization that had been um, centered lo and behold just below this the territory of this commune that they'd set up in Kayantone so he started digging and there were some expectations about well are, is this sort of what we would call an archaeological dig or what was going on? What was down there? The remains of a of a highly technologically developed society, or maybe even speculation that hey, there was some underground uh, cavity down there that where these people had been driven to and were still down there, and they would uh, somehow when we broke through we could. Uh, find uh, and come in contact with this advanced civilization down there. So again, like with the new motor, these things were not well, these ideas were not well developed, but uh, kind of developed uh, first in people's imaginations and speculations about what it was that they were doing. They were being clearly directed to dig this cavity. And they were told that this was um, in order to find this ancient civilization. But what it was that they were going to be finding, nobody was really quite sure about, and they were kind of waiting to see what would turn up. In any event, one of the followers was extremely rich. Well, two of them were extremely rich and funded this elaborate excavation, digging a tunnel um, that you could walk down into. Uh, hundreds of feet into the ground uh, in order to um, make contact. And the thing was, um, as I said, down a couple of hundred feet, I think, and then started to uh, fill up with water. And it's not surprising because there are a lot of underground springs in the region. So they installed I think they installed pumps and tried to keep going, but nothing ever happened. And finally, they were defeated by the, the water and uh, couldn't continue it. Um, that cavity, that tunnel, is I think it's still there, although it's on private property and um, some farm and has been boarded up. And I don't think the owner, from what I can tell, is particularly keen on having people 
go into this because didn't somebody somebody died in the tunnel well yeah yeah that's that seems very not safe very not right good to let people yeah i don't i think it's been mapped i think it's been found lately some kind of uh you know, project to map the area geologically, but uh, I don't think people really go down there. I've never been down there. So all these projects are kind of all in in service of the same kind of idea, though, of like creating this new society uh, where people can basically be free to do what they want and uh, gives them that peace and freedom. Right? That's kind of what all of these... Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds, sounds great. Good. Wish they had done it. <laughs> sounds awesome. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm in. Uh, so then... I don't know where it is. That, that perfect society may be up in the clouds of the afterlife, or it may be under the, <laughs> under the ground in the center of the earth or somewhere, but it's, it's, not, hey. here. it's not here where I am right now. So let's, <laughs> let's get up an expedition and get to it. <laughs> but... Uh, so eventually, I know you mentioned that the new motor was, he had ideas for other things. Eventually, the new motor kind of morphs into an automatic sewing machine. Well, let me, before we get to the sewing machine, there was one other project that had to do with this, the importance of sexual congress between people who were who had who were regarded as spiritual affinities they would gain uh it was thought this mediumistic power to transmit thoughts to read each other you know clairvoyance and all of this based on this notion he uh, the spirits described to john uh, a project where a male and female medium would be together in some fashion or another in at the in a room at the base of a tower and the tower i don't know what it, nobody knows what these towers really would look like but I, in my imagination i've thought of them as sort of uh, like a giant obelisk uh, maybe with you know mystic symbols uh, carved on the side or something i'm not sure um, and then down in the operating room, um, the, the mediums, uniformed mediums maybe, would be um, entranced, maybe through sexual activity, I'm not sure, but in any event, they'd be entranced, and they, they could transmit through this amplification that was afforded the, by the towers. They could transmit thoughts to other towers that have been built uh, around the region. And so it would form a sort of microwave network. <laughs> I don't know how to, you know, you have to think. It's like a tele, it's like a telegraph network. It's like a telephone company, but Well, with... it's, it's not just, it's not just one-to-one -one transmission here. Okay. Uh, you know, from one point to another. See, this is an advance. This is more like, um, you know, what we've got now with microwave towers. Yeah, sure. So it's a network, and it was going to compete with the with the underground cables, the submarine cables across the Atlantic, and those were bad, apparently, according to this 
the spheres because they were uh, owned by monopolies and it was going to cost a lot of money to send messages and so it wouldn't serve the general people's purpose but here your your mediumistic network would would become um, the people at people's service presumably free I don't know how but um, would transmit messages all over the all over the country it would become the center of the world's communications network this little farm out up in Randolph um, but this was all notional I think they ever yeah, they never did. They do anything to implement this? I no, I don't think so. There's no evidence that any of this was ever even begun. I mean, when they were, can, yeah, because my the question money is, it would have taken. Well, they, well, it's like would they use the same kind of like weird mechanical suit that John used to try to? Uh, yeah, I don't know, but I do know this: that John did do what he called experiments with. Uh, clairvoyant thought transmission um, and it probably involved um, sexual intercourse to ramp up the powers and your uh, a lot of his ideas involve sexual sensitivity yeah yeah well <laughs> you can see how this is going <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean he was a male like any other male and so his thoughts often turned to the fairy sex and i and uh, i'm sure that for the time in the, in the 19th century that's uh i mean even for now his ideas would be very far out there uh I, for the 19th century yeah you're, the free love. Right. This is this is you're describing my brain melting when I first read about these projects in uh, these old books. How could how could this be happening? This is like some eruption of the twenty Buck Rogers of the twenty fifth century into nineteenth century America. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any idea? of why this kind of movement may have been springing up a kind of in direct opposition to a lot of the uh, mainstream ideals at the time. Talk more about that. I, you know, I, I just find it very interesting that, the, you know, it, it's the free love movement, especially just seems so diametrically opposed to at least our idea of what the 19th century was today. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, it was obviously a, a time of major uh, unrest. A lot of this kind of takes place before, during, and after the Civil War. Uh, does that have anything to do with... I don't know if the Civil War did it in itself, but yeah. there was a lot of um, talk about reforming marriage and right because it, it, it kind of went hand in hand with the uh abolitionism and the death penalty and he also didn't believe in prison one thing we i don't think we talked much about earlier was he didn't believe in prisons correct he wanted people to yeah well you know what i, I in his in his brother's charles's um diary he was 
he he one day Charles was like his brother, but not quite so much the same way. But I think it's reflective of of uh, the way people's standard operating procedure was, at least among the reformers, was ex- daily expectations about what next, what where will I, where will I be led next? Man, I surprised that my views on this have changed so much. Now I don't believe, um, you know, in the death penalty, but tomorrow I'm beginning to think, hey, I'll probably be led into thinking nobody should even be imprisoned, that it's impossible to justify one human being imprisoning another. So, Right, and much like these projects, it's, a- it's kind of this... Once you take one step, they never take the step back. They kind of always keep moving forward. And so once you're once you're past that point and once you give in to one belief, it becomes a lot easier to then buy into the next thing that maybe to somebody in mainstream thought is super radical, but for you it's just a little it's more extreme. One further step. Yeah, yeah. It's one for the logic is leading me in this direction. I don't know where I'll be tomorrow, but I may be even further along in this thread. And and part of it too is John, uh, you know, particularly believes that a lot of his life is being led through some purpose, uh, not just of his own wants and needs. He he believes he's following to some kind of destiny. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. He did not It it is it is amazing. necessarily question it. Although there are hints that he may have been playing his followers in some sense at least massaging them so that you know they provided him with support and funding for these projects and so on. So uh, it's hard to um, look deeply down into him, but he was he was certainly unique in this regard that he took his visions, you know, what we would call dreams or even fever dreams, uh, to be real enough to that he believed in them enough to actually go out and try to build them, to construct them. This that step was what made him seem insane to his uh, to people who weren't among his followers. And I guess that leads us back to the, the sewing machine. How does the new mode of power become a sewing machine? Because that, when I read your book, I, I got to be honest with you, that got me laughing because it just seemed like such a, a huge change from well, like such a... A commonplace thing is kind of given birth from this miraculous. Yeah, idea. that's a nice point. That's a nice point. It does have that aspect to it, doesn't it? I, and I don't mean to to speak against that because I think it's true, and I laugh as well when I think about it. However, our understanding of what a, a sewing machine was is a little different, or, or the importance of it is a little different from what um, how it was understood in those days. It was a new invention, and it, it was thought to radically change 
um, the domestic life, it would free women from laborious hand sewing. It would, um, and so that was one huge change because women spent a lot of time sewing. And it would um, also change other things around that about the way the family was organized. They could take in work and be contract workers and still stay at home, for example. So that was, they could be involved in the, in the money economy. There was a lot of things that came together in why the sewing machine, the invention of the sewing machine was, was important to domestic life. And of course, John was a big, a huge advocate of uh, women's rights and freeing women from the bondage of domestic slavery, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in one sense, it was a continuation of, of this, right? It was, it was a machine that would free women from domestic slavery. And so it was an important invention. Also, it could make some money for the group. Uh, so that's not to be denied. So they decided to try to put together a machine that would be cheap and so would be affordable to, to many women. That was important, you know, the democratic ideal. And so it would be the people's machine and that would um, somehow work despite the fact that nobody knew how to build a machine except with the patents that had um, you had the license from a couple of uh, combines, Singer and Howe had sort of cornered these fundamental patents on the machine. And uh, ordinarily people who made different brands of machines had to license the rights from them and thus the price of these machines were prohibitive for, for most folks. So the idea was to reinvent a sewing machine that would bypass those patent rights. So the way they did it, of course, was through visionary work. I don't know how to describe this except to say that they tried to get visions and dreams that would suggest to them different ways of constructing the mechanism that they needed to, to make a sewing machine. And uh, by that time, they had uh, moved into a second spot that they had uh, acquired along the Ohio River. And um, a lot of this experimentation to try to build this machine was conducted there. Um, but it was, again, this big John Murray sphere, it's not like, a, hey, here's a, here's a workshop, let's go to work and try to think of something. It was first go into a trance and then have sexual intercourse, then have a dream where something would come to you based on these uh, powers that you, uh, these spirits, these um, spirits with affinity to the project would visit you and, and give you ideas. So they developed what looked like, I mean, again, we're dealing with, um, instructions and descriptions that have all the um, ambiguity of uh, what you what you would expect out of the middle of the 19th century but um, fragmentary descriptions of something that looks like um, each person being assigned 
were consecrated to the name of a different mechanical function of the machine. So one was called a needleist, and you know, for example, and then they did some kind of improvised uh, ritual or dance where they would all the parts would interact and um, you know to do some basic functions as if they were um, doing the functions of sewing and then they would retire to a room next door and where they would go to sleep and then hopefully have some vision awake with some kind of vision in the morning about how to you know build a machine piece by piece in the way they had done the new motor project but it would be a new wow. so, sewing machine uh, was the sewing machine ever completed <laughs> one can only imagine the... <laughs> yes somehow they produced the machine uh, I, I get the impression that it wasn't a, a great one but it wasn't all that expensive and I don't know. I I don't know anybody that's got a model of it. Uh, if I had, if I had spent the last twenty years looking for one, I might have been able to retrieve one. They did sell a few. I don't know. They tried to um, send an agent to Europe and at least to England and uh, open up a showroom there. I don't know whether or not they sold much or anything, many of, or anything. I don't know if they stole patents. I don't know how they rigged the thing, but they did produce a machine. Right. So uh, you mentioned they go to Europe, starting to wind things down a little bit. John Murray, he goes to Europe for a little bit. Can you kind of talk about him leaving spiritualism, how he fell out of love with it, I guess, uh, and then just the end of his life and how he spent the rest of his days after all these inventions? Well, I, I tend to think that he was constantly enlivened by these visions he had. But, of course, he found obstacles in the way to making them real. And some of them are not only obstacles in the way that the natural world really works, but also maybe disappointment among his followers and um, opposition, and mocking, and so on. And uh, he eventually decided or was told by his spirit friends that um, he could re retire more or less and transfer his responsibilities to someone else, which he did around 1872, I think. And after that, he continued to be a, a medium, but not really the public figure that he thought of himself as and that, had, and that actually had been. Um, but he still continued in participating in reform movements, um, organizing peace societies and attending spiritualist conventions and so on. Um, but really he he ramped down his own activities. Um, but he he still was um, by that time, um, he was like, I don't know, some if he would appear at one of these conventions, his, his earlier uh, eccentricities were softened around the edges, at least in people's memories. And uh, he was just more or less treated as the grand old man and reformer. Usually his 
his uh, mechanical visionary projects were, were forgotten or put aside, and he was remembered for his prison work, prison reform work, or his position in the abolitionist movement. Um, he was still welcomed as a, a medium at spiritualism conventions and so on, but he wasn't um, publicly active anymore. Right, and um, when did he pass away? Um, my memory is 1887 or 88. And how, yeah, how is he kind of remembered by everybody once he passed away? Yeah, he had been, by that time, he'd been really essentially written out of all the histories of the reform movements, not surprisingly. <laughs> So uh, you don't ever hear of him anymore until, you know, I decided to write this book. I mean, it's not entirely true, but um, he, his, his life wasn't put together as a whole um, for a long time. And he appeared only in, um, if you really dug out stuff and, and look for him. Um, there was one very famous um, book called The Modern American Spiritualism, written by um, a spiritualist uh, who was John's contemporary, uh, Emma Hardinge, Britain. And it's so chock full of details that it's usually been used as a source book for uh, historians for a long time since then. And she was quite negative about John and his various projects. And so she did spend... Um, quite a bit of time talking about about him in bits and pieces and reported first on the uh, new motor project, quoting a lot of the descriptions of the time. But she was um, very much repelled, or at least she said she was, by his free love activities and by the um, sheer eccentricity of these physical projects that he was trying to do. So, um, even she didn't really treat the subject well. But it was in her book that I first ran across him. And when I read about him, I just couldn't believe what I was reading. Because he was even kind of on the mainstream, of, uh, on the uh, on the fringes of even spiritualism. Like what you're saying is she, she seemed like a pretty, in terms of how mainstream spiritualism was, she seemed like a pretty mainstream leader of the spiritualist movement. Well, yeah, at the, at the beginning, spiritualists were either spiritualists or trying to get spiritualists together is, you know, as the proverb says, like, like herding cats. They're all individualists. They've all got their own individual visions and so on. So they didn't really organize for a long time. And uh, part of the division, one of the big divisions among spiritualists was, well, is this really true to Christianity or is it? Uh, a refutation of Christianity. So there were Christian spiritualists and uh, um, atheist spiritualists or whatever you want to, whatever category you want to say. But um, certainly one of the um, pictures that spiritualists, many spiritualists tried to portray uh, to the outside world was, look, this, is, this doesn't question um, tradition, society, traditional beliefs and so on, it it simply fulfills your longing for reassurance that there's an afterlife and that your 
um, depart, dear departed ones are still um, with us in a way and still alive. And and it doesn't uh, because of that. Um, there was real reluctance uh, by many people to either broadcast to the world or even to admit to themselves that this was this was a <laughs> spiritualism was an open-ended visionary project that you know could undermine all kinds of, of things. And Emma Hardinge Britain um, was one of those who put on a uh, happy face as it were, for the outside world and portrayed spiritualism as just an unadulterated, pure blessing to the human race. And uh, you can see why she uh, treated Spears' projects and ideas so, um, you know, dreadfully in a way. <laughs> yes, the, the, those... Two ideas do not uh, gel at all. Well, uh, at all. <laughs> well, uh, John, uh, I'm kind of at the end, so do you have any uh, final thoughts? Uh, anything you'd like to say to kind of summarize things? Oh, I wish I did. But I think you've drained me here. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, John, thank you so much. Your this has and, been great. Uh, you know, I look forward to, to hearing what you make of it. Do you know of any other steampunk inventions that were real? Let us know on our Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergei Cheremizanov.